looking for a way to change your life. You got it. I kind of think in some ways, selfishly, that it should remain a secret because it is such an advantage that I kind of want to keep to myself. Natural Stacks. Natural Stacks. Shout out to the guys over at Natural Stacks. Start optimizing your mental and physical performance. Optimize yourself. You are listening to the Optimal Performance Podcast sponsored by Natural Stacks. If you're into biohacking, performance, and getting more out of your life, this is the show for you. If you want more on building optimal performance, check out Optimal performance.com. All right. Happy Thursday, Optimal Performers, and welcome to another episode of the Optimal Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Muncy, and I've got our guest co-host for today, Dr. Mike T. Nelson, hanging out with us. What's up, Mike? Hey, guys. How are you? (laughs) So, Mike, thanks a lot for hanging out with us. Um, For our listeners, Dr. Mike is an expert in nutrition, metabolism, and doing cool stuff like kite surfing and water skiing in his lab coat. Uh, that's a true story. He actually did that yesterday. Yeah, I did. It was fun. Uh, and he also picks up some heavy weights. Um, you know, Mike literally wrote part of the nutrition textbook used in colleges. Uh, he spoke recently at Paleo FX uh, on some quantified self and biohacking tools uh, that we'll get into a little bit later on and spoke in New York City just last month about metabolic flexibility. So get ready for an interesting and jam-packed episode. But first, uh, as always, this is your reminder that you can find the show notes for every episode at optimalperformance.com slash Dr. Mike T. Nelson. That'll be the URL for this episode. Um, And we want to take a minute to read two of our latest reviews on iTunes. Remember, we love your five-star reviews, so head on over to iTunes, show us some love, and let us know what you think about the podcast. So number one, this is from Young JP. I'm so glad Natural Stack started this podcast because I've been a big fan of their products for a while now. Very informative, great guest, and I'm always looking forward to the next episodes. Thank you, Young JP. Next one is Activate Fitness. Ryan is doing a great job with this podcast, and I look forward to listening to every new episode. Definitely worth listening to. So Activate Fitness, you, you broke the code. If you say I'm doing a great job, I will read your uh, <laughs> review on the air. <laughs> so, there you um, go. All right. So Dr. Mike, let's get our fact of the day, and then we're going to roll. We're going to talk a little bit about vitamin C. Um, so here's, this is a cool fact. Uh, from the documentary Food Matters, uh, they presented some evidence that shows high doses of vitamin C has been proven to not only reverse but cure cancer, tumors, and other chronic illnesses. Um, and when we say high doses, we're talking doses of up to 250,000 milligrams per day given directly into the bloodstream through IVs. Um, and this provides the same cancer-arresting benefits as chemotherapy without the negative side effects. Unfortunately, the American medical authorities don't allow this type of treatment, and you have to go to Mexico or some other foreign country to uh, have this alternative treatment. So I think that's that's a great example of just how powerful vitamin C can be. I think a lot of our listeners uh, and, and almost everybody out there will have heard at some point, hey, you should take vitamin C. If you think you're getting a cold, take vitamin C. I think a lot of people, uh, it's not news to anyone that you need to take vitamin C, but I don't think many people understand exactly 
how, why, how much, things like that. So um, let's let's really dig in and cover how vitamin C um, boosts the immune system. And then we'll get into some of these other things, oxidative stress, increasing the speed of recovery, promoting cell health protection. And, you know, Dr. Mike even has some really cool new studies, actually new this month on um, muscle growth that he's going to share with us. So, so Dr. Mike, I'm going to stop talking and let's hear some of your expertise uh, on, on how vitamin C can help boost the immune system. Yeah. So to me, what I find most fascinating about vitamin C is that in essence, it's a nutrient that we've known about for I mean, 70 plus years of research on it. And even now we're still trying to figure out exactly how it works and what amount and what combination and, you know, all that kind of stuff. What's interesting about humans in general is that they actually don't make vitamin C. They're actually one of the few animals that actually don't really make it. Uh, most even mammals actually manufacture it. Um, so a lot of the studies that they've done are on animals like guinea pigs. So guinea pigs don't actually make vitamin C. So they're a good sort of human analog for um, studies. So that's one thing just to point out that if you're looking at supplementation in an animal that is already producing vitamin C, trying to extrapolate that to humans, you've got a little bit of kind of a conflict in the, the model there. Um, so humans have to have some amount of vitamin C. Most people probably know the, the classic stories of you know hundreds of years ago when people were you know creating these huge massive ships and trying to cross the ocean. And a lot of the crew members just kept getting sick. They couldn't figure out what was going on. So they started, you know, having limes and lemons and things like that. And they found that, oh, wow, they don't get sick and die then. But no one even then knew what was the mechanism, what was going on. So later you fast forward and find out there's a disease called scurvy. And scurvy isn't, you don't really see it much anymore in general. Um, but at that time, it was killing just tons of people because you'd be out at sea. You didn't have any access to vitamin C. Humans could not manufacture it, and so they would have all these, you know, diseases like scurvy that actually just killed lots of people. So stockpiling, you know, limes was like a really good military strategy um, to help keep the crew alive, and that's kind of how we initially found out about it. Later, they realized that vitamin C was actually the the main component that was helping in that. I've got a question, and you may may or may not have the answer, but you say, you know, some other animals and mammals make vitamin C that humans are not. I, I think the interesting thing to me is, you know, how is that being done in, in other mammals or animals? Um, yeah, I don't entirely know, to be 100% sure. Um, be interesting. Yeah, I don't know. It's, um, we'll have, we'll have to look into that. They could manufacture it. Yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll have to look into that and see if we can't get that answer for, for our listeners. Um, yeah, because I've, I've tried to figure that out, and I haven't looked at it too much. But to me, it would make sense that we would be able to create it. But for whatever reason, we're missing those enzymes and stuff and that process to do that. I don't know what advantage that confers to us. Because in general, I mean, if you look at all the mammals, humans are the most adaptable creatures on the face of the earth. Mm -hmm. Right. So they, you know, our ability to regulate heat in different environments, to run fast, to run persistence hunting, long distance, pretty much humans are at the top of pretty much everything. Um, but for whatever reason, for we can't make vitamin C. So I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> now, you talked a little bit about, you know, if we see huge, huge deficits and, and um, 
in vitamin C, you know, scurvy and ultimately death are possible. But if we're talking just small deficiencies, what what symptoms would we see in in everyday life, uh, and and how does that impact performance? Yeah, so kind of the if you're low, like excluding scurvy-like symptoms, which aren't really seen that much. Um, tissue healing potentially can be affected. Um, immune system can be affected. Um, so those are kind of the main ones. You know, vitamin C is used in collagen and soft tissue formation and things like that. Um, and it's it's one of those really weird gray areas too because you you don't really the research is not very good at we're very good at saying okay you have a deficiency you have scurvy you know we'll give you vitamin C Woo, fixes it and then there's this huge swath of Okay, so now you don't have frank scurvy, so you don't have a frank vitamin C deficiency. How much more is going to be beneficial? Mm-hmm. And what you see is that in general, it's kind of a interesting shaped curve. So if you're deficient, yep, by all means, have some, you'll be better. If you're not deficient, you know, some may be a little bit better. And then at some point, too much is going to start creating a pro-oxidant and is actually going to be um, detrimental. So that... Interesting part when you mentioned the cancer studies. So a lot of that is actually IV use of vitamin C and not oral use of vitamin C. And the mechanism of action of IV vitamin C is completely different than oral vitamin C because of some of the systems that it bypasses. Yeah, those mechanism actions are are completely different too. Will you explain that for our listeners? Um, Yeah. So the short version is that. IV vitamin C appears to actually be more of a pro-oxidant. So in general, when we hear pro-oxidant, we go, oh my God, that's horrible, right? We want high amounts of antioxidants. In reality, you want a mix of both of them. So you want some antioxidants and you actually want some pro-oxidants. So the body actually uses pro-oxidants to kill different invaders, possibly cancer cells, um, things of that nature but it's also highly regulated and it's a highly local effect. So if we get rid of all the pro-oxidant activation of vitamin C, that's actually bad. So you want them to be sort of balanced. And my understanding from the IV studies is that it locally may act as a pro-oxidant actually on some types of specific cancer cells. That may be the you know mechanism of action of how it works you know, there's another study looking at it that showed that um, fatigue symptoms during cancer treatments were a little bit less. Um, but again, it ends up in a little bit of the gray area too. Mm-hmm. There are some studies looking at it as a conjunctive therapy with other things. Um, but because it's uh, not technically considered a drug, you can't really make any money patented per se, right. which again, doesn't mean that there's no research involved, but then you're looking at, okay, who's gonna sponsor the research? Usually it has to be bigger organizations like NIH or somebody like that um, and not necessarily drug companies to sponsor that research. Right. And that's who's commonly sponsoring most medical research in the U.S. Yeah. And I've got a study here that I just pulled up that's uh, if people are looking at a good review, there's one called the effects of high concentrations of vitamin C on cancer cells. Now, this is in Nutrients 2013 by uh, Dr. Park. It's another really good one on the effect of IV vitamin C on cancer and chemotherapy-related fatigue and quality of life um, by Dr. Carr, C-A-R-R, from uh, Frontiers Oncology 2014. But So if people really want to geek out, those would be 
two good sources. Yeah, and <laughs> and I'll get you to shoot me those on email. We'll we'll put those yeah, yeah. we'll put those links in the show notes. So um, again, go to optimalperformance.com/slash/drmiketnelson, and you'll be able to see the video version of this along with the links to any of the stuff that we talk about. Um, all right, so assuming that somebody is not a cancer patient and you know not doing intravenous you know super high doses what are upper limits um you know for mega dosing vitamin c yeah it appears to vary on stress level so there's some interesting data stating that vitamin c needs may actually scale up with your stress Right, so the more stress you're under, the more vitamin C you may actually be able to use. Um, so this is outside of the frank deficiency. Right. There isn't really much of a negative effect per se. Right. So if you look at something the researchers call a hard endpoint, which sadly is people dying, right, because it's easy to measure. You were alive at the end of the study, <laughs> or you were dead. You know, which is sadly what they call a hard endpoint. Okay. Uh, vitamin C, from that standpoint, is exceedingly safe. Um, usually, if you take too much orally, what happens is you have digestive issues, you'll be in the bathroom for quite a while. But to get to that point, it's usually several grams per day. Um, well, I don't recommend people do this. Um, so when I had a cold a while back, a couple of years ago, I actually tried to do that. So I would scale up my vitamin C intake until I had issues in the bathroom. I can't say if that actually cut the duration of the cold or not. There's some data says that it may uh, decrease the length of a cold. Eh, it's pretty debatable. Um, and in terms of risk of getting a cold, eh, the data on that's still, again, pretty debatable. So in general, you, in theory, could have other effects that we'll talk about on uh, potential muscle hypertrophy and other things. But in general, vitamin C is relatively safe. Um, you don't see any acute issues with it. If you start taking super high doses, you're probably going to have digestion issues, which is going to tell you to cut back. So if you're in that several grams per day area, you probably just don't need that much. The exception being maybe if you're under just, you know, wicked high levels of stress. Um, so Linus Pauling, right, was a famous guy, Nobel Prize winner, who was looking at these super high amounts of vitamin C. And a lot of his research and what he was saying is that it is helpful. And you know, most of the newer research hasn't really proven that out, though. Gotcha. So, um, you know, with with the way that our diets have changed today, um, whether it's soil quality, um, farming practices, cooking methods, um, you know, how has how have those things made it more important to pay attention to? you know, your dietary intake of vitamin C? Yeah, I think in general, it's probably gone up, right? So people are under more stress. In general, people just don't eat as high quality food as they probably should. Um, you know, sources of where it comes from, we're finding out probably do matter. Um, so even the amount of stress they're exposed to matters. So this is very well known in the wine industry. So if you look at grapes that have this sort of stress in terms of high heat, actually restricting water from them for a period of time, those are sort of well known to produce higher quality wines, <laughs> probably because they produce other chemicals in relation to the stress and things of that nature. So we're really just trying to figure out, you know, all these complex, you know, polyphenols and different chemicals that are actually in food itself. So 
my recommendation for vitamin C is, you know, eat a wide variety of uh, citrus. Citrus is known to be very high in vitamin C. Um, you also get uh, bioflavonoids and other compounds that interact synergistically with vitamin C. Some research would say that those may be even more beneficial than vitamin C. But, you know, at the end of the day, what we find is that it's usually going to be those things in combination. So easy way I tell people is if they're, you know, making like a green veggie shake or something like that, you know, grab a couple of lemons or limes or oranges and to buy one of those big kind of squeezers and then just yeah. squeeze it into your drink. You know, that's going to be super easy, not very expensive. Um, and that way, you you know, for sure you're getting whatever, you know, future beneficial compounds that we find are going to be in there, too. All right. I like that. And you mentioned in combination, zinc is, is another thing that pairs well with vitamin C. Can you talk to us a little bit about how and, and why they're synergistic? Yeah. So there's a lot of things that are synergistic in the body, or I should say additive. So different things that are helpful. Yeah. Uh, zinc is probably one of those in terms of uh, minerals. Zinc and magnesium, if people are going to be deficient in minerals, those are probably the top two. Um, so for some people, especially if their diet's very poor, adding some zinc is probably going to be beneficial. Um, they also support some of the same pathways in the immune system, like glutathione production and antioxidants. So they can be beneficial from that. Um, for guys, there's some old studies from the, the ZMA work that showed that if you were deficient in zinc, um, replacing zinc actually helped with uh, testosterone output and that type of thing. However, once you went from being deficient to having enough, adding more zinc was not beneficial. So in the studies, the early study thing they did on basketball players that were deficient in zinc, they showed that testosterone did go up. Future studies, I think one was on soccer players, showed that they were sufficient in zinc already. So adding more zinc uh, was not beneficial. And like all things, if you're taking super high doses, at some point it actually starts to become detrimental. So zinc at very high doses can actually start depleting out copper, and then you can end up running into other issues with that too. But again, that's at you know pretty high doses, which we don't have any data to show that that's beneficial. <laughs> gotcha. Now, you mentioned a couple of times uh, the effects of vitamin C on muscle hypertrophy. So let's, let's talk a little bit about that because, you know, not only can vitamin C help speed recovery and, and, you know, help with dealing with stress, but it can actually maybe improve performance. Yeah. So I've been kind of fascinated by that whole area for a while, um, just in terms of antioxidants in general. So a lot of the early thinking said, okay, if you're an athlete, right, you're generating more pro-oxidants just because of exercise, energy metabolism, things of that nature. And that, in general, is actually true. So they said, okay, so we're going to start supplementing you with antioxidants, and that should be beneficial. So in the very early studies that they did, not on athletes, was done on smokers. I think it was vitamin C, E, and beta carotene in high doses actually made them worse. So granted, you know, smokers are not the same, you know, physiology as someone who's healthy who's an athlete. So in athletes, it's... It's really like all across the board. So there's some molecular data showing that the high amounts of you know C, E, some types of antioxidants may actually interfere with the adaptations of exercise. So there's some mice data on that and sort of molecular level data. The big caveat is, you know, what is a dose and then when was it given? 
So most of the time it was given in pretty high doses, usually given after exercise. We know that if you take a healthy person, you have them go to exercise, their body builds up its own endogenous system of protection. So that's been well known for a while. Um, some recent data on vitamin C and E, I'm just gonna pull it up so I have the info here in front of me. Um, so I was looking for more human studies on what it would say, so here we go. So here's one on endurance training. It's a little bit different mechanism. Uh, it's from uh, physiology uh, response 2014. Effects of vitamin C and E supplementation on endogenous antioxidant system and heat shock proteins in response to endurance training. So what they showed was that a greater stress response to exercise in the C plus E group might indicate long-term adaptations occur through different mechanisms. So in this study, may be beneficial. Um, if we look at uh, muscle hypertrophy, there's two pretty good studies on this. Uh, this one from the Journal of Physiology, 2014, and they'll have it in the show notes. But what they showed was supplementation did not affect the increase in muscle mass or acute changes in protein synthesis, but it did hamper certain strength increases. But if you read it, it's only a strength increase and the bicep curl. So you may have a short-term um, adaptation or decrease in that adaptation to exercise on the molecular signaling level. But chronically, we know from tons of studies that if you provide enough overload and you're doing the things that are correct, it's pretty hard to mitigate or just abolish that sort of a response. My um, last study real quick, there's, this is the one you're talking about. I literally just found this this morning, so I haven't read the full study yet. Uh, Scandinavian Journal of Medicine, Science, and Sports. This is from July 2015. Uh, the title is a little bit misleading. Vitamin C and E supplementation blunts increases in total lean mass in elderly after strength training. Um, but even just reading the abstract, what you find is that this was not across the board. So they're looking at muscle thickness, which I'd want to see how they measured that. And what they found was that thickness of the rectus femoris, so leg muscle, increased more in the placebo group, so the group that did not get the supplement. Um, however, increases in lean mass in the trunk, arms, and muscle thickness of the elbow flexors was not significantly different between the groups. So if you look at that data in whole, it seems to think that vitamin C and E may affect only certain muscles, which that makes me wonder how they were measured and what they're actually looking at and that type of thing. So. Yeah, and, and you know, as you read those, I mean, one of the things that pops into my head is most of those studies, you have to really, really look closely at who the um, participants are. Are they detrained? Yep. Are they untrained? This particular yep. one, they're elderly. Yep. What are the parameters of the training or the exercise? Most of the time, it's leg curls and, as you said, bicep curls. Um, you know, in the strength world, we know that, you know, hey, if we want to get somebody bigger and stronger, we're probably not going to have them do predominantly bicep curls and leg extensions. So, um, yeah. you know. Yeah, it, there's all sorts of caveats that go with it. You know, what was the dose? What was the timing? Um, there's some molecular data to show that if you move the dose farther away from exercise, maybe you don't have that type of effect. Right. Uh, so in practice, what do I recommend? I think if people are going to use antioxidants, probably taking them away from exercise at this point, mm -hmm. probably a good idea. 
because we know that they'll still have all the other benefits associated with them and whatever possible interaction with timing you may you know get rid of and not have to worry about at that point um, I wouldn't take high amounts of antioxidants after exercise um, two caveats to that you're correct on the studies a lot of times they use um, bicep work and leg extension just because that's the easiest thing to measure in the lab using a biodex and the equipment um, natural sources however of antioxidants don't seem to have the same effect in the literature on effects of exercise, right? Because you get all these people then that go, oh my God, I'm not supposed to eat like fruits and vegetables and all this stuff after I train. I'm trying to maximize, you know, my molecular response of the mTOR1 complex to blah, blah, blah. And there's no data right now to really um, support that at all. Right. Um so in talking about best practices and timing, uh, you know, I, I take vitamin C and zinc first thing in the morning. Um, I'm really pumped for this new vitamin C zinc product, uh, cleverly named from natural stacks. So I can take that in the morning, um, and not have to take two separate things. Um, and, and then the cool thing on that one is that the zinc is chelated. So it's zinc, uh, it's zinc glycinate. So, um, you mentioned, um, a lot of stuff in there so again if if folks want to come back and review that or see that make sure you go to um, optimalperformance.com slash dr mike t nelson you'll be able to see those on the show notes um so we're going to get a, a little bit away from vitamin c but before we do that almost forgot this one we're going to talk about this again at the end but we will have a special promo code for you guys our for our listeners um optimal c that is all capital letters optimal C. If you pick up the vitamin C and zinc product, you will get a 10% discount with that promo code. So um, obviously, Dr. Mike is an intelligent guy. Um, he's a highly sought after speaker. He's actually going to speak at two more events in the next two weeks. Uh, but right now we're going to talk about some of the topics he has presented uh, in his recent talks. So let's start with paleo effects. Um, what was your presentation there and, and how can we take some of that and uh, immediately see a boost in our performance? Yeah, so my talk there, I was on a couple of panels, one of the panels on biohacking with Ben Greenfield is going to be on here, Dave Asprey, some other guys, uh, one on muscle hypertrophy. And the main talk that I did was actually on using online uh, fitness technology to monitor your training performance. So there's all sorts of things that come out now to look at, you know, when is a good day to go hard in the gym? When should you pull back? Um, the main one that I like the most is what's called HRV or heart rate variability. And that was one of the areas of research for my PhD. The nice part now is when I was in the lab doing it, the equipment I had to measure it is probably like about eight to 10 grand. I mean, if you were to buy it, and now you can literally get it to run on your phone, even if you have to buy a heart rate strap for like under a hundred bucks. There's three studies coming out this year now showing that that system, I use the iFleet system. So instead of athlete, it's iFleet with an I, that it is accurate and really only takes literally just a couple minutes. So you get up in the morning, put on this little heart rate strap, start the app on your phone, and then it actually will run the measurement. So what it's doing is it's looking at the status of what's called your autonomic nervous system. So as your listeners probably know, autonomic nervous system, one half is a parasympathetic, and the other half is a sympathetic. 
So the parasympathetic is your rest and digest branch. Sympathetic is your fight or flight branch. Kind of like the parasympathetic is like the gas pedal, I'm sorry, the brake on your car. And the sympathetic is like the gas pedal on your car. And what you're looking at is the ratio of how these two are operating. So as you become more stressed, sympathetic is gonna go up. As you're able to recover or you are more recovered, your parasympathetic in general is gonna be higher. So each morning it equates these on a one through a hundred scale. So you, let's say you did a hard, you know, deadlifting and stone day or whatever the next, you know, Monday, you do the measurement Tuesday and you're like, wow, went down like five points. So as it goes down, that indicates that you're actually more stressed. So maybe I'm going to just do a lighter day or maybe take today off. The next day you come in, oh, wow, it's actually back up to where it was before. All right, today's probably, you know, a day that I can go ahead and train. So it can be predictive in terms of strength training, but what I really like is that it tells you the cost of not only what your training was, but actually also your lifestyle. Yes. So if you went out, had too many beverages, slept four hours and you get up, now most people are gonna go, well, yeah, of course my training performance is gonna be down, but knowing that maybe seven hours wasn't quite enough, maybe your nutrition matters, maybe your carbohydrates are too low, whatever, your boss is yelling at you all day and you're stressed out of your mind, all those things will show up in the HRV number. Again, because it's a measure of the autonomic stress. And that allows you to not only make lifestyle changes and see if they result in the change you want, or also you can modify your training. That's a beautiful answer. I'm so glad that you you talked about and, and used specifically the word, the cost of some of those lifestyle yeah. things. So I, I think, you know, most people know, hey, if I go into the gym and I pull some heavy deadlift singles and maybe even hit a new personal best that, yeah, my nervous system is going to be a little bit fried in the next day or so. I may not be able to have that high output, but I don't think many people have the same awareness of those lifestyle things like you mentioned where it's yep. um you know maybe you're you're pulling an extra day at work for a month or you know you've got to pull uh an extra couple hours you know if you're if you're a cpa and it's april your your heart rate variability is going to be different than it is in june um or or anything like that so it it helps you quantify and put a number on and you see exactly what's going on so so these are really cool tools and and ways to um not only track but but to to try to test ways to get back to either back to baseline or to optimize performance on the plus side of baseline yeah, and that's the thing that's missing, right? So you have a lot of people doing, you know, biohacking or whatever word you want to associate with it, and that's fine. I don't particularly care for that word, but I know what they mean by doing it, right? They're right. they're just doing things to try to make themselves better, which I think is awesome. Um, but then, how do you measure that, right? So okay, maybe I can look at performance in the gym. Maybe I can look at some other type of work output. But I think HRV gives you a really good idea of literally within the next day, am I going in the right direction or not? And, you know, things have like delays and that type of thing in them too. But by having that daily measurement, you can then go back and look and say, oh, wow, like you said, I only got one hour less of sleep for like the past two weeks, but it's actually going down. I think if most people were left to their own devices, they wouldn't realize that just that one hour less probably had that much of a difference. And the nice part is you can then make a change to sort of interrupt it before you have those really bad consequences. 
Right. So HRV is one. Are there any other uh, measuring tools or devices that you like? Yeah, there's a whole bunch of them out there. So I've kind of looked at a lot of them. There's a Finnish company called Check My Levels that has a little electrode you actually put on your wrist, <clears throat> literally zaps your thumb a little bit and measures it basically the twitch force or your thumb. It seems to be accurate. The in-house study they had showed that it does kind of mirror HRV, and that's kind of what I found from testing it off and on over the past couple of years. Um, there's a portable Omega Wave system now, which is from Finland and Russia. It's interesting because it, it can differentiate between cardiac, metabolic, and CNS. Oh, that's so in cool. In terms of, say again? That's cool. Yeah. So I love the fact that if you were to look at performance and just say, okay, I'm going to divide the body into three arbitrary areas, I totally agree. I think that's probably the best uh, division. The hard part is there's no way to sort of cross-check it against anything else. So you kind of have to take the readings and go, okay, yep, I think this is correct or not, and then test it. Um, so that's kind of the downside that I don't like with that system, to be perfectly honest. Right. Um, and anecdotally, the cardiac function on there, at least for myself and a few other people I've worked with, it just doesn't seem to be super sensitive. But again, maybe it's measuring something else that's a little bit different than HRV. It's uh, hard to say. Um, those are probably the main ones. There's all sorts of HRV companies coming out now and all sorts of different measurements. And, and soon we'll have so much data, but I think it's going to be really hard to pull stuff out. So out of all the stuff I've tested over the past four years, the things that I use uh, literally on a daily basis um, is still HRV. Yeah, I think that's a good point too. I mean, I, I've played with some of these myself and, and I'll, I'll be perfectly honest, I used HRV for... Mm, maybe a month and I just got tired of having to wake up in the morning and get the heart rate monitor on. It would, it would take me longer to get the thing to stick to my chest than it would to actually get the readings. And, oh, yeah. you know, I'd get so stressed out about the thing not sticking to my chest that by the time I laid down and started breathing, it would tell me I was stressed out. And you know, that, that probably tells you I am stressed out anyway, but yeah, <laughs> a quick tip on that too, is that a lot of times if you're using the old school, just, um, electrodes on there. Yeah. If the air temp is really dry, that the electrodes don't have very good conduct conductivity with the skin. So go to the store and buy like those little uh, nasal saline spray yeah. and just keep that little bottle next to your bed and then just wet the electrodes with that in the morning and it works really, really well. well so. th there you have it. There you have it. <laughs> um, but I'm with you. I mean, I, I think, you know, you mentioned that in time, we will have so much information that it's like, you know, what are we going to do yeah. with this? And, and from my end, it was, okay, I'm, I'm spending so much time to get this information. And, and at the time, I really wasn't doing anything with it. So uh, that's why I got away from it. But I think if, if you, uh, I, I just kind of like to go intuitively, I've been doing this stuff for so long that I can tell with my body, but when I'm training other people, and, and as a coach, and you can probably speak to this with working with people online, um, it's a very valuable tool because if if somebody walks into our gym and you know say, oh yeah I'm here I'm ready to go, they may not be and they're they're there so they want to get their best possible workout and and it these things these tools provide us great feedback to say okay well Mike you know you're actually in red or or yellow today so we're going to hold you back we're not going green even though you want to and. And if you, if you, especially working online with people, are not able to see these people in person, uh, I'm sure that's something that really helps you um, kind of 
in real time make adjustments to programming so that we can keep people moving forward? Yeah, yeah, because most of my clients now I've transitioned to most of them are online, which is nice. I get to work with people from you know New Zealand to Denmark to Canada to wherever. Um, and I've been using HRV with them for probably the last total three years now. Um, so I probably have you know tons of HRV data on online clients, probably more so than a lot of other people. And to me, at first, I I just kind of did it as an experiment. I want to see what happens. And now I actually won't really train anyone without it, especially if they get up to a slightly higher level or they're doing a physique show or a strongman competition or something like that. Because of exactly the same fact you mentioned, that they'll tell me, oh, yeah, I'm good. And if I'd watch their performance real close, I'll see over a couple of weeks that it's dropping so I know something is off. But with HRV, I can intervene literally almost on a day-by-day basis. And what I really found out is that it gets them to be accountable over their lifestyle and their recovery and their training. And, and I'm just as guilty of that too, right? I, I want to solve all my issues with you know more coffee and you know metal music, right? Ah, it fixes everything, right? <laughs> right, right. Um, and it works temporarily, right? But there's a cost at some point that has to be paid. And so I, I still do my HRV because I know that if it's low, okay, today may not be the day to push it. Even though I really, really want to, mm-hmm. I know that it's, it's not the day. And so for clients to see that trend actually going down, something literally clicks in their brain. They're like, oh my God, wow, I, I guess I am really stressed. I guess, wow, sleeping five hours a night, I guess is just not working. You know, where you've had these conversations with them almost on a daily basis for months, but until they have that visual thing of an actual physiologic response, mm-hmm. then it clicks and then they actually email me and go, yeah, you know what, I, I think my sleep is affecting my stress. And you're like, yeah, but now they're willing to do something about it. Yeah. So that's what I found is actually the most useful. Yeah, I would agree with that. That's that's a very, very valuable thing. Um, you know, it. most of our pursuits carry an emotional connection and we want it. We want to get there. We want to get yeah. there faster. We want to get there sooner. Um, and this is a great way to separate you know, the science or, or the reality of the situation from that emotional is like I said, you know, the, the, the guy shows up at the gym. It's like, Hey, I had a hard day at work. Yep. You know, I, I just, I want to more coffee and heavy metal and sling some stuff around. Well, it's like you said, you know, now we see that cost and, um, you know, we'll, we'll use the analogy of strength coaches or, or, you know, people helping others that, you know, you, you're digging a ditch and yep. if you continue to dig it, you won't be able to get out. And, and this, like you said, it's a visual that, that you can't argue with it. Um, and now as the coach, we're not the bad guy. It's, you know, Hey, this is really what's going on in your body. Here's how we fix it and get you going in the right direction. Yeah. And that's a beautiful part, right? So it, it takes me out of the loop of me being the bad guy telling Hey, you want to do, crap? you know, <laughs> and I, I'm just as guilty of that myself. Right. Um, but we're saying that, okay, so if you want to train again, here's the things that you need to work on to increase that, you know, whether it's aerobic based and nutrition to supplements to whatever. And then we can see, was there a change? Oh, okay, there was. So you are moving in the right direction. So now you can do, you know, wads five days a week or whatever training you want to do more often, right? So it gives them that feedback to get to that point sooner. Yeah. And it brings in that, that holistic approach of, of everything. Yeah. Um, you know, your, your recovery, your soft tissue work, your flexibility. Um, speaking of, of that, 
you and I have talked before, and you've actually uh, you mentioned something that I thought was really interesting using the lifting of weights to act as a recovery method um, in place of maybe some of the traditional stuff like foam rolling or, or other soft tissue. Yeah. Explain to us, you know, your, your thoughts there. Yeah. So in essence, every movement that you do in the gym or even just life, right? So the fact that we're sitting, having this awesome podcast, you know, our hip flexors are probably getting a little bit tighter, right? And yep. that's just the cost of doing business, right? So your, your body's constantly adapting to whatever you're doing. So if you go to the gym and you're doing, let's say, heavy back squats today, super high amounts of tension to perform, you know, two rep max, your tissue in general is going to want to get a little bit tighter, right? So if I break the bones in my forearm, we're going to put a cast on it and we're going to not let it move for months or weeks so that the bone becomes rigid again, so it heals. The opposite is true. So if I want tissue to be more elastic, right, and you see this in studies of sprinters, you're gonna move the tissue very, very fast, almost at the extreme end in a ballistic fashion. Again, safely, you have to work up to that. Right. And you will actually get those better tissue properties. So if you're foam rolling to get better tissue properties, I don't think it's enough to accomplish that. But we know that lifting or speed or force will definitely do that because it's a higher force. So as an example, what I've been doing lately on off days is, I don't know if you've seen the, the Viper from Michelle Dalcourt. It yeah. looks like a rubber strongman log. Yeah. And the first time I saw it, I saw a video and I went, this is the stupidest thing I've ever seen in my life. What the hell? are these people doing slinging this strongman log around? Just go get a real log and press it for Christ's sake. Right. Um, and then I actually took a course from him, Thomas Myers, who did a whole bunch of dissection work. And what they're doing is they're using that in different motions. There's a lot of lateral motions, there's a lot of up, down, cross body, but the motions in general are very fast. So they're actually trying to target the fascial or the soft tissue part of the body one, by speed, the loads are actually lighter, and then two, by longer ranges of motion in movements that you're not normally doing. It's a lot of lateral movement, a lot of rotational work. And what I found was I combined that with a, sort of a light conditioning day. So I'd strap a heart rate monitor on people, and I did this myself, and say, okay, here's a bunch of movements you can do with a Viper or kettlebell juggling or med balls or whatever you want to do, but have it be fast, more cross-body, but I'm going to tap your heart rate, and the max I'm going to let you go is maybe 130. So I want to keep you in a heart rate zone of like 110 to 130 for 20, 40, or even 60 minutes. So I want it to be recovery work from the cardiac system, and I also want to try to restore some of that elasticity in your tissue and give you exposure to movement patterns that you normally aren't doing. So that's kind of what I've been doing is more recovery off days. All right. That's beautiful. And it's cool that you mentioned doing that with that Viper log. Um, I was actually in Columbia, South Carolina at Sorenex, Summer Strong, uh, yeah. back in June. And Derek Poundstone was one of the presenters. Oh, cool. And he went through every strongman implement um, and talked about technique for the actual event. But then he also talked about conditioning. And he, he said this sort of jokingly, but sort of serious, where he said he was talking about the metabolic demands of some of those strongman things. And, um, you know, it's funny getting back to the log where he was actually showing that Viper press 
as cardio as a mm-hmm. way to to restore the muscles. So so maybe like you said, on one day you do heavy log presses, heavy log clean and press, or whether it's a stone or a keg, whatever the apparatus is, and then on the the next training day or if you wanted a cardio effect and to loosen those up and to improve tissue quality make your joints feel better using the viper press as cardio where he would just set a a timer for like 60 seconds or two minutes and it was uh you just go and you try to get in as many reps until that timer stops now i know that's a little different than what you're saying Mm -hmm. but it's i think he's trying to accomplish something very similar um and I think at one point he told us, I think he set a record uh, in that, and, and I don't remember what it was, but um, you know, very interesting that you know, he kind of intuitively stumbled onto uh, the same thing um, with that. Um, but the joke- comment on that too is that what you find a lot of times in those, especially higher level, more borderline elite guys, obviously Poundstone's an elite guy, is that the cardiorespiratory limit a lot of times in my experience is a local muscle effect so if you so if i work with a mixed martial artist who comes to me and they say yeah i'm just gassed out in the second round or whatever the first question i'll ask them is is that standing or is that on the ground and most of the time they'll say man as soon as i get on the ground i gas out right away i'm like okay what does your training look like oh yeah all my cardio stuff is standing oh okay so literally have them sit down, feet out, kettlebell press for a couple minutes, you know, things that are longer duration, lighter load, but accentuate the upper body. If you have an upper body rower, um, ropes are really good with that, battling ropes, yeah. right? Because you want a cardiac effect, but you also want those local muscle adaptations on more of the endurance spectrum too, so. Yeah, and that's probably why you see so many MMA guys using battling ropes. Yes. So. Yeah, it's brilliant for that, especially yeah. for high velocity, high intensity movement. So John, yeah. Brooke, John Brookfield's the man. <laughs> so um, uh, we actually, his name popped up on a previous podcast. We had Tim Anderson on talking about oh, crawling, yeah. and and we're we're yeah. trying. Tim is Tim's trying to get us in touch with uh, Mr. Brookfield, and we'd like to have him on. So if you're listening, hint hint. Yeah. Um, no, but but back to to Poundstone's joke was you're talking about the metabolic effect of. Um, all of that strongman work. He said, you know, if you do this as your cardio and you lift a bunch of heavy stuff all day, you can go home and eat Ben and Jerry's every night like I do. So I know that uh, a lot of our listeners might want to eat Ben and Jerry's every (laughs) night, but uh, in reality, we're a little bit more health focused. So I don't think we do, Um, which brings us kind of to the next stuff that you talk about. And uh, you're a big expert in metabolic flexibility. That's what you spoke on in New York. What is metabolic flexibility? Sure. So metabolic flexibility, in the simplest way, is that the two main fuels, if we just limit it now to two fuels in the body, primarily fats and primarily carbohydrates. And each have their own benefits. Sadly, in the fitness world, everyone wants to prioritize, oh, ketogenic is the only way for everyone, or high carbohydrates are the only way for everyone. And the reality is it's it's kind of both, right? So when you're just kind of going throughout your day or sitting here having a podcast or whatever, you actually want to use fat to the highest degree. So your resting metabolic rate, low intensity work, and you want to use fat to the highest degree. However, when you go, maybe you train with Poundstone, want to do some log presses or CrossFit or whatever your training modality is, if you're doing a high intensity weight training or intervals, you want to use carbohydrates to the highest degree. I just have to say one thing. I don't think all the carbohydrates in the world would help me lift with Poundstone. Oh, no. No, he's a freak. (laughs) 
I can eat all the carbs I want, and I'm not going to pick up a 350-pound stone like it's not too hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think he said the heaviest he's ever done was like five-something. I don't remember, but it was I saw a video there. of him doing 450, and I was like, holy crap. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. I didn't mean to cut you off. So, yeah, no so, but, but, but that's great. I mean, it's, it's carbs when we're doing the low-intensity stuff or uh, fats when we're doing our low-intensity stuff, a majority of our activity. And I think that's where – it gets everything gets oversimplified you know i think the the public the the masses want blanket statements um and i think that's where where the the evilness of carbs kind of comes in because most people spend way too much time being sedentary the the average person let's face it i mean you're mentioning you know what my day or your day may look like where we're sitting but then we are going to go and and exercise and be active and try to try to have that output but in reality, that may be, what, 10, 20, 50% of the population. That's not 100% of the population. And, and a majority of the people who um, you know, are, are being delivered this nutrition advice, uh, it is, you know, look, you probably don't need carbohydrates. Um, so how do we set up uh, a, a daily meal plan um, without giving away too much of your secrets, obviously. Yeah, no worries. But but how do we set up how do we set up that daily meal plan so that you know when we are sitting doing our work that we can use fats for fuel? But then okay, this podcast is over. I'm going to go to the gym and I'm going to try to do some power snatches. And I know I need carbohydrates for that power output. What's the best way to optimize our diet for that? Yeah. So what I do with clients is in general I will set their protein amount first. Um, usually around 0.7 grams per pound of body weight, you know, and that's from one of the research textbooks I helped with. You can go up to one gram per pound of body weight. You know, that's definitely on the higher end, probably more than you need, but again, not, you know, dangerous or anything like that makes for super simple math, that type of thing. And just for the record, that's very consistent with, with what we're, uh, recommending and what most of our other guests have said too. Yeah. Yeah, and even if you wanted to be real nitpicky, the 0.7 is probably an excess. You know, again, that his literature goes back and forth all the time. Well, again, and that's for that's probably for a sedentary person. So as we introduce more stress, mechanical stress, muscle breakdown, and and you know, we're trying to build bigger muscles, so we may need some raw materials for that, right? Yeah. So if you look at the literature, where the 0.7 came from, real briefly, was people. It's a chronic studies people who were not athletic, and they took and they said, okay, you people here were slashing your calories by 40 to 60% overnight. And what they found was in the very low protein group, they actually lost muscle mass, so therefore over time their metabolic rate was less. So that amount of protein, even in people who are not weight training, will help protect almost all of that drop in lean body mass. Now, if you get into people who are extremely active, who do a lot of weight training, the data on that is, is probably still good. Um, Researchers like Dr. Stu Phillips have argued that those athletes are actually more efficient at using protein and that their turnover is just a little bit better. So they may actually paradoxically not need quite as much. But I always look at what is sort of the pro and the con, right? Right. The pro, if I have a little bit too much protein, my body, you know, at even a gram per pound of body weight, can handle it fine. I'm not going to run into kidney issues. I'm not going to have issues other than it's a little bit more expensive. Um, the benefit, maybe I get a couple more percentage benefit. You know, to me, that's you know that's pretty good. But I think people don't have to worry that if they're only at you know 0.7 or even 0.6, 
that all their muscles going to magically fall off their body and they're going to be, you know, weak and look like a toothpick the next day. That doesn't happen either. Right. Um, so I said protein first. Um, essential fats like fish oil are good. You know, two to four grams per day is a rough amount. That's probably on the higher end, to be honest. And then I have most people move uh, most of their carbohydrates. Again, depends on how many carbohydrates they're taking in per day. Uh, move most of them before and actually after their weight training sessions. So in general, 40 grams of carbohydrates before training with 20 grams of protein, 40 grams of carbs with 20 grams of protein. These are kind of minimums mm -hmm. after training. Mm -hmm. And what you're trying to do then is that you want to make sure you have enough carbohydrates to fuel your training. I personally like to have insulin actually go up a little bit before training because that will push your body to use carbohydrates a little bit more. Performance-wise, most people usually anecdotally report that they do um, better. And the nice part is you have other time periods in the day where carbohydrates in general are relatively lower. So your insulin levels in general are going to be a little bit lower, and that's a little bit more of a stimulus for your body to use um, more fat. And again, that's for someone who is just starting to get more active. You know, there's extreme outliers to that all the time because people then read that and go, oh my God, I had carbs for breakfast. I'm, you know, a horrible person. And that's not really true at all. You know, if you're if you're up to eating 300 grams of carbs a day and you're doing well, obviously you have to split them out, you know, different parts during the day. But it's just a template for the average person who's looking because what they'll do then is they will actually scale their carbohydrates back. They'll actually have periods of time to allow their insulin levels to come down. They won't usually affect their training performance. And so they generally start moving along the right path. And they generally eat more protein, and they start taking essential fats too. So, yeah, and and you mentioned in there the the importance of not having insulin present all the time. You know, when it's present, we're not able to utilize fat, stored body fat, as a fuel source. So, for fat loss and for people paying attention to body composition, we want to limit those carbohydrate feedings or windows so that insulin isn't always there. Yeah, and that's, I mean, obviously getting the argument of, well, do calories not matter then? Calories by far are probably the biggest thing, right? Because you can actually become very metabolically inflexible by just not exercising and taking in a crap ton of calories, regardless right. of what they are, right? right. So it, right. it's not to say that calories don't matter, but what you're trying to do is that you're also trying to improve the person's health, right? Because to me, if you have someone, let's say, as an elite endurance runner, but they have to go through and use a ton of carbohydrates all the time, I don't know if that's gonna be the best thing from a health perspective long-term. Right. Um, even performance is still a little bit debatable too. Um, so I do wonder sometimes about, you know, the classic old school bodybuilder who has protein every three to four hours, tons of carbohydrates, and they do this like nonstop for years. Right. There's not any data now to say that that's detrimental. They have a ton of protective effects from the fact that they are that active, they have that much muscle mass. But to me, if you look at the other extreme of uh, type 2 diabetics, they actually start having issues with carbohydrate metabolism. And over time, what happens is their insulin levels go up and up and up and up, and that actually impairs their body from using fat. So if you look at the spectrum of type 2 diabetics, obviously a disease process, they actually start losing the ability to use carbs, and then they actually start losing the ability to use fat. 
And over time, they just can't move very well from one to the next, which is a, a classic hallmark of that disease. So in my head, I think we'll find that periods of lower calories or even fasting or even just not having protein, and that could be as simple as just you know 10 hours overnight, right? You know, it can be something like that. That I think those periods we'll find are actually necessary, right? That you need that ability to move down and to use fats and then still be able to use carbohydrates. Yeah, and, and for the record, I don't know that we ever actually define that, but metabolic flexibility is the ability to bounce back and forth between those two energy substrates. Yeah, and so to me, the nice part is how that it manifests is that if you go out and have a whole bunch of carbohydrates, hey, your body can effectively use carbohydrates. There's not many repercussions in terms of health from that. Consequently, you should be able to go through periods of time, and I have clients who can work up to 19 to 24 hours progressively without eating anything. And you should still be able to function quite well doing that. And that, I think, is a pretty good marker of health. Because in reality, I think, what are people trying to achieve? To me, the average person wants high performance, better body composition, but they don't want all the inconveniences that kind of come with that. Right. Right. So that if they miss the meal and they go five, six hours, it's not a big deal. Right. And consequently, if they have more carbohydrates at one meal instead of the other, again, it's not that big of a deal. Their body can handle it. So you're, you're going to be OK. Um, I get a little nervous about people that are so ultra rigid that and I used to be this way. You know, oh, my God, it's been three hours. Mm -hmm. If I don't eat someone, I'm going to be like really angry and not happy. <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, I come in from the, the physique background too. I was that way. I was, yeah. I know what it's like. And, you know, I can definitely agree with you and, and understand that, you know, the idea of the, the inconvenience of having to eat all the time or, Oh, Hey Mike, sorry, we can't do the podcast at 11 because I'm supposed yeah. to eat at 1130. Right. Yeah. Like, that's, <laughs> that's that's just not going to work. <laughs> yeah, and, and if you're a healthy person, your your physiology is just you're just not that fragile, right? You right. know, and it, I understand that if you're trying to step on stage in your underwear at you know very very low body fat percentage, yeah, you're going to have to do things that are not the average, and you know a lot of those things definitely do work. I just ask people to be cognizant of what is the cost of that. So, like a, a physique person that I would work with after their contest. I would want to see what is their stress level so that over time we can actually get that down to a normal level. Their calories are super low, so we'll slowly try to increase those back up. And then we'll actually slowly try to progressively go longer periods of time without any food, right? So can I get them back to sort of quote unquote reverse dieting or whatever term back to more of a normalish lifestyle, yeah. right? So that is actually built into part of their program. Okay. Now, one more question on carbs and, and pre-workout and performance. You know, you mentioned that most people are looking for high performance, some body composition um, optimization. So we want more muscle, less body fat. Um, I am one of those weird people. You said, you know, anecdotally, a lot of people feel like they train better with insulin. Um, I like to train without insulin being elevated, but I also understand the importance of having glycogen to be able to use carbohydrates for that higher output stuff. So I like to have my carbs after the workout and, you know, almost that backloading approach for the next mm -hmm. day. So is that another way of achieving the same thing? Does that have the same effect? 
Yeah, so the, the biggest thing overall is two things actually. So one is your ability to use carbohydrates. So there's been three studies now showing that if you put someone on a very low carbohydrate diet, higher fat for long periods of time, you know, several months at a time, they actually start losing the ability to use carbohydrates really well. Paradoxically, fasting doesn't seem to do that. Um, the other part is that, so you want the ability to use carbs and then you want to have them available, right? So you want access to them and you want them available. Start form of carbohydrates is glycogen, primarily in the muscle, also in the liver. Performance-wise, muscle glycogen is probably the main thing. So if your background diet is high enough in carbohydrates, you're obviously a healthy person, you can access those just fine during training. So unless you're doing something that's really, really stressful or very long in duration, you're probably going to be okay. The only thing that's a little bit debatable is how far those elevations in cortisol mm -hmm. are going to be and if there's any negative effects with that. So cortisol isn't really the big bad boogeyman everyone's really afraid of. You actually want cortisol levels to go up during training because that allows your access to fuels and fat and carbs and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. The catch is that as soon as training is over, you actually want that to go back down. Yeah. So anecdotally in some uh, people who train for more than an hour, I'll have them take in some carbohydrates actually during and then just monitor their performance. Uh, most of the time it goes up a little bit but I have a lot of people that you know only train at five in the morning and they actually do that fasted. Um, so again, I tell people, you know, play around with it a little bit. Um, in your case, you could try some halfway through your training, just make sure it's a fast acting carbohydrate and see if you notice any difference in training performance or not. You know, if you've tried it and you don't, then hey, you know, you're, you're good and I wouldn't really worry too much about it. Yeah, and just for the record, I have in the past, I, I've used products that have, um branched cyclic dextrin uh, yep. and, and that would be the one that I would use in that instance yeah so I like Vitargo Vitargo's yeah. got data showing that it clears the stomach fast you know shows up in the bloodstream real fast and they don't pay me any money so <laughs> right. <laughs> right okay so now what other supplements do you use on a daily basis or, or are in your toolbox with your clients yeah it Depends on their needs and their goals and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But I would say in general, like just sort of basics across the board, you know, whey protein is good. Uh, fish oil is good. I think creatine monohydrate is really underrated because it's just old and boring and blah, oh yeah, creatine, whatever. Um, but ridiculously safe. Tons, I mean, the first study done on it was like probably 1981. So ridiculously safe. Um, newer studies are showing that there's some neuroprotective effects from it, possibly, especially at higher doses, 10 to 15, maybe 20 grams. Daily? That's a, that's a daily dose? Daily dose, yeah. Wow. wow. Yeah, so pretty high dose. Um, Mark Ternopolsky did a really cool presentation at ISSN last year on that. But they're actually using it for some neurologic diseases now. So any athletes I have that have a risk of concussion or head trauma, um, that would probably be the top one I would recommend to them. And it's, it's cheap. It's like, what, a few cents a day. So so how does that work? Do we know the mechanism of that neuroprotectiveness? Yeah. I don't think they know exactly what it is. Um, from my really limited understanding is that in higher doses, creatine will actually cross the blood-brain barrier. So we do know that. It appears to take higher doses for that effect to happen. Um, creatine is stored in some amounts actually in the brain itself. 
So one of the theories is that it may actually be helping replenish some of that energy faster. Because we know that if you take a big shock to the head, that you massively disrupt the energy metabolism of the brain and the, the neurons. And so that's where some stuff with like even a ketogenic diet, if you could get someone into ketosis super fast, which you can now with like um, just basically a keto salt or an ester. Um, Dr. George Brooks lab is doing it with lactate. So give them an IV infusion of lactate. So give the brain an alternate fuel to run off of for a period of time that you know may decrease your risk so it, it may be something kind of operating along that mechanism possibly is my guess okay cool um now as far as creatine crossing that blood brain barrier and being stored and used in the brain you know in the biohacking again that word that space um creatine is actually um you know becoming a little bit more popular almost yes. as a nootropic yeah so. yeah probably Similar reasons would be my guess. And I've talked to a couple of formulators who do nootropic products. And the reason it's not in a lot of them is because you need at least five grams. And from a consumer dosing thing, putting it into capsules is a pain in the butt because you'd have to take so many capsules. Even in a powder, it adds a lot to the, the bulk of the powder. So a lot of them actually don't include it. Um, but my recommendation is if the bulk of the powder from a serving size is not a big deal that yeah just add it i mean it's it literally is really cheap lots of data to show that it helps and again tons of data to show that there's virtually no side effects from it too so yeah and i have to say that that the natural stacks biocreatine is is actually a, a different type of creatine in the sense that you don't need the full five grams uh i don't have the literature in front of me and i have not memorized why that is so forgive me for not knowing that yeah. answer off the top of my head and i don't have another computer i'm looking around trying to pull that up i want to give that answer so uh we may actually have that in the show notes so that people can check that out and see um how and, and why that is such um, yeah. And in right. general, creatine monohydrate is the one that's been the most study and efficacious. Yeah. Okay. So whey, creatine, fish oil, anything else that, that may be on uh, your quick list or short list yeah, of go-tos? Yeah, caffeine, you know, on occasion I think can be helpful. Um, those are probably the main ones. If they're in a northern climate, uh, vitamin D is probably pretty good. A lot of people end up being low in vitamin D. Um, you know, general multivitamin, you know, if their diet is really poor, I may use, you know, zinc or magnesium, things like that. Um, that's kind of generally where I start. If, you know, there's other things you can play around with from, you know, nootropics to antioxidants to different types of, um, like protein powders or even essential amino acids. I do like Vitargo for around the time of training, just as a fast acting carbohydrate. Um, so in general, that's probably where I'd have people start unless there's something really specific they're going after. Okay. Now, with everything that you do, training and, and speaking, teaching, uh, coaching, do you use nootropics? I have actually off and on, to be honest, because I'm, I'm one of those weird people where it's training, nutrition, or whatever. I sometimes think I spend more time experimenting with stuff that I may have clients try than I, I do with my own stuff, just because I feel like if I haven't at least tried it for a short period of time. I'm not going to give it to them to do. Absolutely. I, you've done this, right? You've run right. out of programs on paper. And yeah. you go, man, that looks easy. And I'm like, well, screw it. I'll go to the gym and try it. Yep. That's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. So yeah, I have um, I have tried some off and on, nothing crazy. Um, like acetyl L carnitine, uh, DMAE, creatine. Those are probably the top ones I've tried. Just some other choline ones. Uh, Cognizant is pretty good. It's a, it's a choline source. There's some pretty good data on that. Um, I just started trying uh, Alpha GPC. Okay. There's not much data on it if you talk to the manufacturers. So Chemi Neutro is the main uh, manufacturer of that. They have some in-house data showing that it increases um, sort of neural output or neural drive. So like your higher uh, stress sessions, one rep max, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So I just started that actually last week. Again, anecdotally, two sessions that I did more grip-based stuff. It did seem to help. Again, you know, two sessions so far. Um, so there's not much research on that. And even a lot of those for performance, um, it's, it's kind of hit or miss. And I think there can be some beneficial effects. But I'm also one of those weird people where if I see something that has a really huge effect, then I'm wondering, well, what is sort of the cost associated with that? Right. right? So let's take one we know a lot about, like caffeine. So caffeine generally is shown to be safe. Yes, you can take too much. Yes, you can die. But in general, it's shown to be relatively safe. But we also know that if you're pushing the red line that high by taking just tons of caffeine every day, there's a cost that's going to be associated um, with that. So that's kind of how I view nootropics also that, you know, if you're replacing a deficiency, you can get some pretty good effects without, you know, much of any side effect. If you start going beyond that, or now you're trying to get a greater effect, mm -hmm. there's really just no free lunch. You know, you're, you're, there's going to be some cost that has to be paid later. Maybe you just delayed it by two or three days. Maybe you made some changes. Um, so I think the ones that generally have been shown to be safer generally have much milder um, effects, especially on focus and that type of thing, probably going to be a little bit better just from more of a safety standpoint in my biased opinion. Well, I would have to agree with you. And um, since you mentioned L-carnitine and, and that kind of getting back to baseline, fixing deficits approach, that, that safe long-term, we're going to have to send you some Siltep. Uh, if you yeah, haven't, I haven't tried that one yet. If you haven't tried it, we'll send you some and uh, let you try okay, that. Cool. So, yeah. So we're almost out of time. Um, Dr. Mike, where can our listeners get more of you? Sure. Um, easiest way is just to go to my website. It's just www.miketnelson.com. And if you scroll down, you can get a six-video fat loss course for free. Uh, a lot of people have used it. It's been you know, very effective. It's just uh, it's pretty short. And again, it kind of walks you through some of the stuff we talked about here um, so that you can uh, put it into action and you can get a hold of me through there. Awesome. Awesome. So before we let you go, we want to know your top three tips to live optimal. Yeah, to live optimal. I like that. Um, I would say the biggest one is just, you know, enjoy what you do. I see way too many people that just don't enjoy anything that they do. Um, second to that is just related. I would say that almost everything you do is an active choice. So you hear from people that, oh man, I hate doing my crappy job. Well, I'm like, but you went to it every day, right? Oh dude, I gotta go to work. No, you don't. I'm not saying there's not a consequence to be paid if you don't show up, they may fire you and you may be out of a job and can't find another one, but it's still a choice that you made every day to go into work or to do whatever you wanna do. So that puts the onus back on them, you know, gives them sort of control and that type of thing. 
And then the third one, which I'd say is uh, related to it, is just, you know, learn and apply. You know, take stuff, you know, learn new stuff, but then figure out how can you apply it. I'm not a big fan of collecting all sorts of data without application. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's going to be a good thing long term. So those would be my three. Those are awesome. Awesome. Thank you for sharing those. And Mike, yeah. thanks for hanging out with us today. This has been a really cool podcast. I hope our listeners enjoy it. Um, so for everybody listening, that is it for this week's episode. And as always, we appreciate your support here at the Optimal Performance Podcast. Remember, the show notes are available at optimalperformance.com slash Dr. Mike T. Nelson. And make sure you check out the Natural Stacks Vitamin C and Zinc Stack that we talked a little bit about in the beginning. Uh, That'll be at naturalstacks.com. And remember, special promo code just for today's episode, Optimal C in all uppercase letters, and that'll get you 10% off. Um, Make sure you head on over to iTunes, give us a five-star review, and we will see you next Thursday. Thanks a lot, Mike. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Brian. Looking for a way to change your life. You got it. I kind of think in some ways, selfishly, that it should remain a secret because it is such an advantage that I kind of want to keep to myself.